This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Mike Sosha, card number 225. Mike Sosha, catcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers. All right. Why did we choose Mike Sosha this week? Matt, we have a guest this week, Jeff Snyder, who's the co-host of the Locked on Dodgers podcast. Jeff reached out to us about the podcast. He'd been listening to a couple episodes, and I said, if there's ever a Dodger who crosses your mind that you'd like to talk about, and his first suggestion was Mike Sosha. So the Locked on Dodgers podcast is a daily Dodgers podcast, and that... (laughs) What? Matt, your multiple podcast ideas should we start doing a daily 1988 tops podcast well a daily podcast is great i i think that weekly works best as as you may remember i had an idea for an hourly podcast called 60 minutes but that just for some reason the lawyers didn't like it and that just didn't take daily seems a little extreme and so i'm excited to ask jeff about this and how how he functions as a human in society producing a daily podcast. I would love to find out because it's hard enough doing it once a week. So Jeff, welcome to the show. Tell us about yourself and about this show. Hey, thanks guys. Yeah, it's fun to be here. Uh, Yeah, I think the bigger question is how I function as a husband and a father. (laughs) And my wife might suggest that I don't very well. (laughs) Yeah, we we used to do it. My co-host Vince Samperio, he and I started a weekly podcast like normal people do back in 2016, I believe. We called it the Scully Avenue podcast. We started right around the time that city of Los Angeles renamed the street, the Dodger stadium is on after Vince Scully. So, so we hopped on that and we did 138 episodes of that show weekly over the next two and a half years. And then David Locke, who owns the lockdown podcast network reached out to us and said, Hey, do you want to change your name and start doing it every day? And I said, not even a little bit, but he eventually (laughs) talked me into it. And so, yeah, now we do it, you know, and and to be fair, it's not daily. It's only five days a week, just weekdays. So, you know, we get the weekends off and uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun though, because there's not much I would rather do than talk baseball. So uh, I, I get to do it five days a week. That is great. And we'll be sure to link it in the show here. So Dodger fans and baseball fans of all kinds can subscribe and how did you become a Dodgers fan? I was born into it. My dad was born and raised just east of L.A. My dad was four years old when the Dodgers moved to L.A. And his dad had originally been from Arkansas, grew up a Cardinals fan. But as soon as the Dodgers moved to L.A., the Snyders became a Dodger family, except for my Uncle Jim, my dad's older brother. He was four years older than my dad, so he had already picked Willie Mays as his favorite player. Mm. Uh, my, my Uncle Jim's first memories is the catch in the 1954 World Series. Uncle Jim was five years old. And so he's been a Giants fan since that day and still is to this day a family of Dodger fans. And Uncle Jim is the Giants fan. But even Uncle Jim's kids are Dodger fans because they know better. They know, hey, you, you were born a Snyder. You are a Dodger fan. Uh, and Uncle Jim, we love him. He has a lot of good qualities despite being a Giants fan. <laughs> so you've not, now been doing the Dodger podcast since 2016. Those are real good years to be a Dodgers fan. And we're going to be talking about some of the other good times in the 80s that the Dodgers had. Mike Sosha was a huge part of that. I think in listening to your your podcast, you said that one of your first Dodger memories was Ozzie Smith. And that 1985 NLCS, that was a huge moment we talked about in the Tom Needenfuhrer episode. But 1985 was also peak Mike Sosha. And Mike was a two-time All-Star, two-time World Series champ as a player, one another as a manager, and maybe more importantly, a two-time Simpsons guest star. And so before we get into the card, Jeff, you also had some follow-up for us, maybe some corrections, some omissions, some additions. Fire away. Yeah, I I mentioned you guys. I heard about your show, and I'm like, I need to start that next time I'm on a road trip. And so I held off for a month or two, and then I had to drive down to southern Utah. I live in Utah. I had to drive down and pick up my brother a few weeks ago. So I'm like, I'm going to start listening to that show. And I've now listened to all your episodes in the last three or four weeks. And so basically I've kept a a running note on my phone of everything that I would have emailed in at the time, uh, (laughs) just additions and, and stuff. The most important one comes from one of your early episodes about Jerry Royster. 
Mm. And you guys have talked about how Jerry Royster said that he was in the dugout for the Dodgers when Hank Aaron hit his 715th home run. He said that he jumped up and hit his head on the dugout roof. But in looking at Jerry Royster's game logs, he didn't play for the Dodgers until September of that year and spent most of the season in Albuquerque in AAA. So so you guys were wondering, was he really there? Has that become kind of an, kind of an urban legend that he tells that he was in that dugout? Well, I can tell you he was there. And that's because before the 1973 season, the Dodgers signed Ken McMullen to be their third baseman. And just before the season, unfortunately, Ken McMullen's wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. And so he took some time off, spent some time with her, came back, and eventually ended up losing his third base job to Ron Say. But McMullen was still on the team in 74. And, and when his wife was diagnosed, they actually made the decision not to get treatment because she was three months pregnant at the time. And the treatment for her cancer would have ended her pregnancy. And so she waited until after she had delivered her baby to have uh, treatment for her cancer. And unfortunately, this gets sad. Basically, they waited too long. And she actually passed away in early April of 1974. And so Ken McMullen was away from the team to deal with the fact that his wife had just died and Jerry Royster replaced him on the roster because the triple a season didn't start until April 10th. And so Jerry Royster replaced Ken McMullen on the Dodgers roster for, for those games. So he was in the dugout with the Dodgers on the roster. When Hank Aaron hit that home run, he didn't get into any games during that time that he was on the roster. And Ken McMullen was back just a couple days later and, and Royster was back in triple a to play most of the season in triple a. So that's our Jerry Royster update. Wow. Well, that's that's exactly the kind of deep dive that we appreciate here at the 1988 Tops podcast. That is, that's an amazing story. The rest of these will be quicker, more of a, a rapid fire thing. <laughs> Steve Jeltz, big fan of Steve Jeltz. Yes. The only thing you forgot to mention, failed to mention about Steve Jeltz, my favorite Steve Jeltz memory is he is the runner who was held at third base when Paul O'Neill kicked the ball in from the outfield to the first <laughs> baseman. That was Steve Jeltz rounding third, who had to hold up at third because Paul O'Neill kicked it directly to the first baseman. Uh, so that's my Steve Jeltz memory. Jack Lazorko, uh, when you were talking about Lazorko's defensive exploits, you mentioned a video about the soccer goalie a couple years ago who keeps getting hit in the face with the ball. Yes. Uh, that goalie is named Scott Sterling. Well, the character is named Scott Sterling. The actor is named Matt Meese. And that video was filmed at my alma mater, BYU, mm. which is also the alma mater of 1988 top stars Jack Morris, Vance Law, Rick Aguilera, Corey Snyder, Wally Joyner, and Scott Nielsen, plus mm-hmm. Dane Orge, the brother of baseball's best Garth. <laughs> <laughs> second best. Second best because of, of Garth Brooks's uh, on-field exploits. Agree to disagree. <laughs> Ron Hassey. You mentioned that you had never heard of Porfi Altamirano. My mm-hmm. first car was a 1979 Toyota Corolla named after Porfirio Altamirano. Uh, we called him Porf for short. Uh, his full name was Porfirio Altamir- Altamirano, as was my cars, and we called him Porf. In the Bob Stanley episode, during the RBI Baseball Corner, Brian mentioned that Rich Gedman is one of the many right-handed hitters on the Red Sox. In real life, Gedman was actually a lefty, but he does hit right-handed in the game. And I have no idea why, so maybe you can ask Brian next time on the RBI Baseball Corner if he has any insights on that. If there had been a This Way to the Clubhouse on the back of the 2007 top set, we would have learned that Troy Tulowitzki was signed by scout Todd Blylevin, son of noted fart lover Burt Blylevin. Mm. And uh, later, getting sad again, Todd was actually in Las Vegas at the Jason Aldean concert. In 2017, when a shooter from the Mandalay Bay Hotel opened fire, killing 58 people and injuring hundreds. And when the shooting started, Todd Blylevin and his friends and family, they rushed out. And then he saw a man carrying a lady who had been shot, so he stopped to help. And he said, I quote, at that moment, the feeling of her arm, of her hair brushing against my forearm and the lifelessness of her body, something grabbed me and said, you need to go do something. You need to go back. And I looked at my brother-in-law and said, Joe, you need to take Kathy and Heather and keep running north. I'm going back in. And he went in over and over, physically helping about 50 people to safety, although three of them died in his arms and another one died later that night at the hospital. But uh, true hero, Todd Blylevin, son of Burt Blylevin and a, a scout who signed Troy Tulowitzki. My last update. Uh, it's about the Waxahachie swap, which you mentioned on the Kent Tecolvi episode, uh, which is when a pitcher will leave the mound, go play in the field for a batter or two, and then return to the mound to pitch. Uh, you mentioned Tecolvi doing that in 1979. He is actually one of eight players in the 1988 top set 
to do that. The only one you've missed so far is Keith Comstock, who did it in 1987. Mm. He was a part of a Waxahachie swap. The others are Todd Worrell, who did it five times between 1986 and 1989, Jeff Dedman in 1986, Chuck Krim in 1989, Les Lancaster in 1990, and then Jesse Orozco and Roger McDowell, who actually swapped back and forth several times over the course of three innings in an extra inning game for the Mets in 1986. And McDowell actually did it one other time in 1991 for the Dodgers. He watched from left field as John Candelaria struck out Fred McGriff on three pitches and then returned to the mound. And the catcher for the Dodgers that day was Mike Sosha, and we've now come full circle. (laughs) The circle is complete. The circle of follow-up is complete. Jeff, that was incredibly impressive. Thank you so much for that. Each one of those would improve that original show so much, and that's what we've missed out on on these Almost two years of doing this show, so we have missed this expertise. So thank you for giving it to us now. And we still have hundreds of episodes left, so we hope that you'll help to keep setting the record straight in the future. But now let's go to today's card and Mike Sosha. And let's go to the front of this card. Let me pull this up on the on the Jumbotron. And in this card, Mike Sosha is at the plate. And first thing I'll say in looking at, at this card, are his eyes open? He looks... Like he's kind of sleepy at the plate. Yeah. Is this a staged photograph? There's a lot going on in the background here. We have like an Astros ball boy. We got another guy in a Dodger uniform. We've got a cameraman and another fourth person back there. There's a lot of people jammed into a small space. This looks like a nonchalant stance. A little bit knock-kneed. He's a big guy, but he looks like a like a real athlete here. I do like the way that the bat is in front of the writing, except I think that in this case, the three-dimensional effect has has messed up the printing. Yeah, David, I'm zooming in here, and it looks like an Escher drawing. It looks like the bat is both in front of and behind of the letters E and R in Dodgers. And Jeff, do you understand what's going on here? How do we get this optical illusion that maybe Mike Sosha has torn a rift in the space-time continuum with his bat. Yeah, I think that's basically what did happen. Is I think there's definitely some space-time continuum issues here. The bat is in front of the E and behind the R. And so if you look at just those letters, it kind of it starts to mess with your mind. And you mentioned, David, that, that you wonder if it's a stage shot. This is how I remember Mike Social looking when he was at the plate. He had a very relaxed kind of uh, short swing. There's not a lot of extra movement. There's not uh, a lot of squat in his stance or anything. You could tell he's just going to go up there and put the bat on the ball, which is basically what he excelled at for his whole career. So as we flip to the back of the card, we see Mike Sosha spelled S-C-I-O-S-C-I-A and having taken one semester of Italian and being able to use Google, I would say that this name should be pronounced Shosha. Who knows when it got Americanized to Sosha, taking out the first sh sound. For me, you know, pronouncing it is easy because you hear Vin Scully say it all the time on TV. For me, the hard part was knowing how to spell it. I, I've discovered the secret to remembering how to spell Sosha's last name. All you have to do is have a dad like mine who just calls him Mike Skioskia all the time. Because I grew up hearing my dad refer to Skioskia. You know, he knew it was Sosha, but he called him Skioskia. Just like you mentioned Cincinnatus on, on last week's episode. The way I know how to spell Cincinnati is because of a terrible made-for-TV movie, Babes in Toyland remake with Keanu Reeves and Drew Barrymore from 1985, in which there's a song where they sing about what a great city Cincinnati is, and they sing... I come from C-I-N-C-I-N-N-A-T-I, Cincinnati, the best town in O-H-I-O, Ohio, USA. And that's how I know how to spell Cincinnati, and I know how to spell Sosha because of my dad saying Skio Skia. We love a good dad joke here on the 1988 Top <laughs> So we have Mike Sosha, height 6'2", weight 219, left-handed batter, right-handed thrower, drafted by the Dodgers in the first round of 1976, born November 27th, 1958, in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, with a home in Claremont, California. He's born in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, the son of Fred and Florence. Fred was a salesman for a beer distributor, and Florence was a teacher. Other famous Upper Darbyans include Tina Fey, Todd Rundgren, and Jim Croce. And Matt, I don't know that I've ever told the story that I have from bartending. 
David's Bartending Tales Corner. That's my other podcast. This <laughs> one's about Leroy Brown of the Jim Croce song fame. Famously, Leroy Brown was from the south side of Chicago, and he was the baddest man in the whole dang town. A guy who used to come into the bar that I worked at was Leroy Brown, and he was introduced to me as Leroy Brown, and I said, like the song, and from a source, they said, yeah, same guy, mm. same guy. Leroy would come in, always very kind. He was the MC at another blues club, so he would get up on stage. He had a really low, gravelly voice. And Leroy always drank a Heineken and a Martell, which is a snifter of cognac. And Leroy passed away in 2007. The story that Leroy told was that he met Jim Croce when they were in the military and that somebody was picking on Jim Croce and like took his guitar away and that Leroy helped him get it back. And Jim Croce said, I'm going to write a song about you. And this is what Leroy Brown told me. And we'll link to this McSweeney's article that is written by the son of Eddie Clearwater. And Eddie Clearwater owned that bar that Leroy Brown was the MC at. I saw Leroy sometimes get into scuffles with other people, but he was always very kind to me. And so whether or not he was the actual Leroy Brown, I like to tell people that I know Leroy Brown. So now you just need to meet King Kong and a junkyard dog, right? <laughs> yes, I, I'd rather not. <laughs> so while... While Mike was born in Upper Darby, he went to school at Springfield High. There's only four names associated with Springfield High on baseball reference. Two of them were pitchers who later made the big leagues, and the fourth name is Jeff Petrie. And that name jumped out at me. I recognized Jeff Petrie. And so on baseball reference, he's listed as not having signed with the team that drafted him. He instead went to college to play basketball at Princeton and was a first-round draft pick in the NBA won the Rookie of the Year in 1971, and was one of the first athletes to wear Nikes. Later had his number retired by the Trailblazers and went on to be an executive for the Sacramento Kings for 20 years. So Jeff Petrie, one of the other famous Springfield High alums. At Springfield High, Sosha excelled at baseball and football, all area in baseball and football. He was Delaware County Baseball Player of the Year two years in a row. He had scholarship opportunities, full ride to play baseball at Clemson. And then the Dodgers pick him in the first round. And that takes us to the This Way to the Clubhouse that Mike signed as a first-round draft selection with the Dodgers July 12, 1976, by scout John O'Neill. John O'Neill was a longtime baseball guy. He spent more than 45 years as a player, manager, general manager, and scout, retiring in 1986. So he played 1,800 games in the minors, made it to the big leagues for 46 games for the Phillies, and he was the Philadelphia area scout for Milwaukee, Atlanta, and then the Dodgers. So he finds this kid, Mike Sosha, in the Philadelphia area. And O'Neill ends up getting the credit on the card. But another guy played a, an important role in the signing of Mike Sosha. And that was the Dodgers' third base coach, Tommy Lasorda. So the Dodgers drafted Sosha 19th overall. First round pick. But he also has this full-ride scholarship, and his mom really wanted him to go to school. So Lasorda calls him up and says, like, I'm going to take you to go meet the team. We're going to convince this kid to come play for the Dodgers. And he told him that the Dodgers believed in him, and basically the only chance that he had to play for the Dodgers was if he signed. Yeah, if you've ever met Tommy Lasorda, had a conversation with him, you know it is impossible not to do what Tommy Lasorda wants you to do. That was his greatest skill as manager. You know, X's and O's, he was fine. Good at some things, not great at other things. But every one of Tommy Lasorda's players would run through a wall for him because he's a great motivator. And apparently that includes talking to 18-year-old kids about signing with the Dodgers because I don't think Mike Sosha ever had a chance. Once Tommy Lasorda got involved, and maybe if Sosha's mom had been there, maybe she would have understood more why he got talked into it. So Sosha has to go home and tell his mom, I'm, I'm going to sign and go play for the Dodgers. And she was disappointed. He left a full ride on the table. According to one article, she never entirely forgave him for that decision. Florence died a few years later in 1983. But Mike's dad, on the other hand, was proud of him, but really couldn't show it in front of his wife, who was disappointed that her son was skipping out on college. Maybe if she had seen 20 years later what 
Mike would would have turned into. She might have had a different a different opinion about that. But Sosha goes ahead and takes the leap and starts out at A ball in Bellingham. And when he got to Bellingham, he felt like he was the worst player on the field. And this is a guy who had been a successful baseball football player had always been one of the best players on his team. He shows up and he feels inadequate against guys who had been pros. And you have a 17-year-old Mike Sosha walking onto the field, and he ends up catching on quick. He was a patient hitter throughout his career, but even in the low minors, he never struck out more than he walked. So he has a really good on-base percentage, 418 at Bellingham, 385 at Clinton, 393 at AA San Antonio. He wasn't known for his power, Not a lot of home runs in those early years, but he hit some doubles, and he was developing into a really good defensive catcher. At AA San Antonio, he missed part of that season with injury, but ends up hitting 299 and moves up to AAA as a 20-year-old. He was outstanding. He made the all-star team for the Pacific Coast League, hitting 336 with 34 doubles and only struck out 33 times with 73 walks. Moving into 1980, he was on the Dodgers' 40-man roster, but then... The Dodgers had two catchers go down with injuries, so he ends up getting the start on April 20th. In his first at-bat, he got a double off of Joe Necro, and he ended up getting significant playing time, playing in 54 games and hitting 254. but he was sent back to AAA for a portion of the season. He ended up playing 52 games at Albuquerque, again hitting 331 at AAA, so really tearing up AAA pitching. He starts out the season 1981 in a righty-lefty platoon with Steve Yeager, and he's really coming onto his own. Jeff, how would you describe Mike Sosha in those early years? You mentioned his contact hitting, that he always walked more than he struck out. And that was Sosha. He's going to hit the ball. He's going to hit you some doubles, not many homers. People grew up who grew up in my time period watching Mike Sosha. The defense is a lot of what we remember, especially plate blocking. There's a video on YouTube that's a, it's a clip from This Week in Baseball that is just Mike Sosha getting plowed over at the plate over and over again. At the end of the clip, you hear Vin Scully at the end after Sosha gets run over. Vin Scully says, I have never in my life seen a catcher block the plate like Mike Sosha. And this is Vin Scully, who you know had seen some baseball by that point in time. Al Campanis also said that, he, that Sosha was the best he'd ever seen. Al Campanis had been teammates with Roy Campanella, among others, and had been a Dodgers scout for you know Steve Yeager and Johnny Roseboro and everybody in between. So uh, definitely getting a reputation as, as a great plate blocker. And with that comes some of the injuries that blocking the plate can lead to. And, and Sosha was, was not immune to injury throughout his career. We see the most games he played in the season was only 142. And even in those seasons where he was playing 140 games, he was missing time significantly due to injuries. A lot of times when he was blocking the plate in the 80s, you have him sometimes being knocked unconscious. And then joking about it and saying he was knocked out for five minutes, but really all he cared about was holding on to the ball. His wife wasn't necessarily a fan of of that plate blocking. When Sosha was asked how she felt about it, he said, she knows if I'm carried off on a stretcher, I'm hurt. And if I stay in the game, I'm okay. Yeah, it's kind of funny in a not funny sort of way how casual everybody was about head injuries back then. You know, even that this week in baseball clip I mentioned, there's the play where he gets knocked unconscious for five minutes and all they're talking about on the, the show is, but he held on to the ball. You know, it's like, all right, well, as long as we have our priorities straight. Along with the plate blocking, you also have Sosha coming into his own with game calling. Don Sutton, who had left the Dodgers in 1980, credited Sosha with some of his pitching success and some of the pitching success of the Dodgers in 1981, particularly Fernando Valenzuela. Sosha caught five of his first six wins, and four of those were shutouts. Another skill that Mike had is eating a skill. (laughs) Yes. I like to think so. If it's a skill, I am a very skilled person. During the strike in 1981, Sosha said, I've just got me to feed, but the guys tell me I eat enough for a whole family. <laughs> so he, it was important to him. On the Chris Sabo episode, said the thing you liked about Chris Sabo is you're, you you could look at him and squint and say, oh, yeah, I could do that. Nothing special about him, really. That's kind of how I felt about Mike Social. Like, as long as you're big and strong, it doesn't matter if you're slow and can't hit for power, even though you should be able to. As long as you put the bat on the ball and can take a hit at the plate, you know, you can you can uh, be a big leaguer. So I, that, I like that as a big, slow kid. <laughs> There are lots of aspirational players for all different kinds of athletes. I I definitely relate with that. So 81 is a playoff year for the Dodgers. How did things go? 
So they had finished in first place in the NL West in the first half of the season. So they earned that playoff spot in the the weird strike year, despite finishing fourth in the second half of the season. So in the playoffs, Sosha had a disappointing first couple of rounds. He went two for 13 in the NLDS. He did get an RBI single off Nolan Ryan in the decisive game five. In the NLCS, he started great, went two for three with a home run in game one, which is impressive considering he, at that point, only had three major league home runs. And then he went 0 for 12 in the next four games. But the Dodgers won it in five to make it to the World Series against the Yankees for the third time in five years, at which point Lasorda turns back to Steve Yeager. And Jeff, do you have some insight here? Was this a move to the veteran because he had been in the World Series before? Or what was the deal with moving back to Jaeger after playing Sosha in those first two rounds? It, it can be misleading. If you just look at the games played in 1981 between Sosha and Jaeger, you'd think Sosha's a starter and Jaeger's his backup. And so this does seem like a demotion, but really, they really were in a pretty strict platoon throughout the season. But the thing is, the Dodgers only faced 14 lefty starters in all of 1981 in 110 games, and only four of those in the second half. So Sosha got the bulk of the starts in the regular season and the postseason simply because he was the left-handed hitter in the platoon. But then in the World Series, the Yankees threw Ron Guidry, Tommy John, and Dave Rigetti, all lefties, in the first three games of the World Series. So Lasorda went with Jaeger, and Jaeger said, we never see left-handers in the regular season. It's all right with me if the Yankees start Rudy May in the fourth game. Rudy May was another lefty. And Jaeger said, we sure didn't face enough of them to get me in many games. Jaeger didn't play at all the last 18 days before the strike, just because the Dodgers were facing a bunch of right-handed pitchers. So Sosha didn't get an at-bat in the World Series until Game 3. Yeah, Fernando Valenzuela had started Game 3, and he was actually struggling. His command just wasn't quite there. And the Dodgers knocked Dave Rigetti out of the game in the third inning. George Frazier came in to pitch for the Yankees, so the Dodgers put in, okay, there's a righty pitcher now, so Sosha's in the game. And... Whether coincidentally or not, Fernando settled down quite a bit once Sosha was in the game, too. In the fifth inning, Sosha comes up with base load, nobody out in a tie game. And you're thinking, all right, anything, do anything. And you you like Sosha in that situation because you know he's not going to strike out. Even if he gets into a double play, we score the go-ahead run. Well, that's what he did. He granted into a double play. Uh, he joked later that, you know, whatever it takes to get in the record books, he drove in a go-ahead <laughs> run in the World Series, even if it was a double play. That put the Dodgers up 5-4. to four. And like I said, Fernando settled down. And they actually had a pinch hitter in the on-deck circle ready to hit for Fernando if Sosha didn't come through. But Sosha drove in the run and made two outs. And so now it's two outs. And so they just let Fernando hit. He ended up pitching a complete game, settled down the rest of the way, and didn't allow another run. And the Dodgers won that game, which was a a turning point in the World Series because the the Yankees had won the first two games. So if they win that game, it's three games to none. And, you know, that's all she wrote probably. The Dodgers end up winning this series in six games. And Steve Yeager is the series MVP in an interesting turn, but he's not going to be the starter the next year. In 1982, Sosha returns as the starter. Sosha ends up playing in 129 games that next season, but his offensive performance suffered. He hit only 219 that season. After the season, the Dodgers were looking in the market for a new catcher. Sosha goes to the offseason, focuses on improving his hitting and his defense. He wasn't happy that the Dodgers were looking for a replacement. He just wanted to keep playing. And the Dodgers didn't end up making a trade, and they went into 1983 with with Sosha starting. He started out hitting pretty well, but then injured his shoulder early in the year, throwing out a base runner, and he ends up missing most of the season with a rotator cuff injury. Yeah, the Dodgers catching situation was kind of mess in that time period because you had Steve Yeager who wanted to be traded because he had lost the starting job. And then the Dodgers were trying to trade Mike Sosha because he wasn't living up to the starting job. You had two catchers and neither of them seemed like they were going to be there for very long. Add on to that that you have an often injured Mike Sosha who in 1984 suffers some knee ligament damage. Of course, injured while blocking the plate, but he was Mostly back to his 1981 form. He hit 273, walked twice as many times as he struck out, played good defense. He was third in percentage of runners caught stealing. And in 1985, he goes on to have his best season, at least wins above replacement wise. Also, his best season in batting average, hitting 296, and his second most games played. He stayed pretty healthy while the Dodgers won the NL West and pretty healthy by 1985 standards. He was knocked unconscious by Jack Clark in a collision at home plate concussed, stretchered off the field, and then came back to play the next day. 
Sosha had joked one time, somebody asked how he practiced blocking the plate, and he said it wasn't easy because it's not easy to find guys who will come out early before games and run into you. And that's probably for the best because uh, he got plenty of practicing in actual game speed. He didn't need uh, much plate blocking practice other than that. Aside from those injuries, when asked if Sosha needed a rest, Lasorda said, Campanella used to catch every day. So did Yogi Berra, Bill Dickey, Johnny Bench. Why not Sosha? He's big and strong. Did you ever see an Italian who needed a rest? (laughs) I don't even know what that means, but I, I suppose Mike should take it as a compliment. Yeah, it's definitely Italian pride. Even if it's not accurate, at least it, it was meant in a positive way. So so we won't get too upset about that one. For the season, Socha was valued at 5.4 wins above replacement, which was ninth in the National League among position players. And that was the sixth best season for a catcher in the 1980s. The top four are all Gary Carter, then Carlton Fisk, and then Socha, which is pretty good company particularly considering those guys are power hitters and, and Hall of Famers. And then you have Sosha who hit seven home runs, is a, a pretty valuable player, largely because of his ability to get on base and make contact with the ball. And he also gets another opportunity to play in the playoffs in 1985, this time against the St. Louis Cardinals. He went four for 16 in the series, but added four walks for a 400 on base percentage. He had a, an impressive defensive moment in game two, throwing out Vince Coleman and Willie McGee back-to-back, which is pretty good. Uh, Unfortunately, the Dodgers lost in six games in that 1985 NLCS. Yeah, you mentioned that's my earliest memories. That NLCS, that's the Ozzie Smith and Jack Clark homers, both off Tom Needenfewer. I almost couldn't even listen to your episode about Tom Needenfewer because of that, that series. We tried to warn listeners in that one. You don't have to listen to every episode, but we encourage it. (laughs) rounding out 1985 Sosha ends up being rewarded for this excellent season signs a four-year 3.8 million dollar contract but injuries held Sosha back in 1986 and they held the Dodgers back in general Sosha hurt his ankle that hurt his offense his batting average dropped 45 points he only played in 122 games and the team fell all the way to fifth but a huge highlight in 1986 is the baseball boogie. Yeah, you accidentally mispronounced low light, Matt. <laughs> the Dodgers were bad on the field in 1986, but wait till you see what they did off the field because it's even worse. Yeah, so this this video has it has several elements that put it in the let's call it the C tier or D tier of our baseball songs. It has satin jackets, it has a lot of white pants, it has pretty poor dancing, it's got a lot of very cheesy saxophone, and it has some attempts at rap. Yes. And it has Jerry <laughs> Royce. Yeah, well Jerry Royce was the uh the instigator this video was his idea and you can tell by how enthusiastic he is when it gets to we want to hear him play our music on the radio (laughs) you know like (laughs) jerry royce is the only person in this video whose heart is in it and Sosha is the only one who you can tell in the background several times you can see in his eyes he's questioning he's like maybe mom was right maybe i should have gone to clemson (laughs) like i'm questioning every decision i've ever made in my life that led to this moment This epitome of cringe is perfect for our show. I'm very excited to include it. So thank you very much, Jeff, for bringing this to our attention. And there's one scene with Bob Welch, who has a really nice, uh, really nice move at the beginning. So you you think it's going to be a good video for Bob Welch. But later, you can clearly see him watching the choreographer doing every move like a half a step behind. But then he nails the little punch to the left move that you could tell that's that's the one move he remembered from the from the dance. And he was going to nail it. And he did. I guess I have an overriding question here. Was this done for charity? What was like, what was the point of this video? No, that that's one of the best parts. This was 
Jerry Royce thinking, hey, we play in LA, that's close to Hollywood, we should have a fancy Hollywood kind of video. I'm pretty sure you can see Ed Begley Jr. getting out of a limousine earlier in the video. I think it's Ed Begley Jr. The, the video is so pixely, you can't tell for sure. And surprisingly, or not, Tommy Lasorda hated it. When he found out that they had made this video, he actually made them come in the next day on their day off. He made them come to Dodger Stadium and practice. He's like, if you got time to make that terrible video, you have time to practice baseball. And I think it didn't sit well with Tommy Lasorda that this team that wasn't playing well on the field had time to go do this terrible, awful, awesome, wonderful video. It is appropriate that you just said Ed Begley Jr. and Sitwell, because that was his character in Arrested uh-huh. Development. Man, I didn't even think of I, I You can't tell if Ed Begley Jr. has eyebrows in this video. <laughs> this is well worth a watch for listeners. Or it's... if you're like me, it's well worth 18 watches. <laughs> and uh, just be prepared for your children to like you exactly as much as my children currently like me, which oh. is not very much. We will leave 1986 in the past, and now let's head to 1987, the final line listed on this card Sosha is healthy again in 1987 but the Dodgers are still under 500 they finished the year 73 and 89 and Sosha at this point is more of a 250s 260s hitter and still not a lot of power he stole seven bases this year is that right yeah it was a career high but it wasn't a good idea still Sosha was famously slow 29 career stolen bases but he was caught 24 times and so he's the kind of slow that in these days, now that we understand the value of a stolen base compared to the negative value of being caught stealing, they just never would have had an attempt to steal. You know, Tommy Lasorda once joked, if Sosha raced his pregnant wife, he'd finish third. That's all you <laughs> need to know about Mike Sosha's speed. After the season, he had knee surgery, which probably didn't make that speed any better. But going into 1988, we have a, you know, what's going to be a big year for the Dodgers and Jeff, probably a big year in your childhood. The Dodgers made a couple changes going into the 88 season. They traded away Bob Welch, maybe for his performance in the Baseball Boogie video. They brought in Kirk Gibson, who I imagine would have no part of something like that. Jesse Orozco, I think he would probably enjoy that video. Any other key additions here for the Dodgers? You know, in the Bob Welch trade, they also got Jay Howell and Alfredo Griffin. Uh, ended up being their closer and their starting shortstop, although Griffin missed a bunch of the season after getting hit in the hand by a Dwight Gooden fastball. Uh, so Dave Anderson actually played a lot of shortstop. But, you know, really it was the Kirk Gibson thing that was almost an afterthought. Kirk Gibson was only even a free agent because of the collusion between owners. He was declared a free agent, and the Dodgers signed him and brought him in, and it turned things around. There was an incident actually with Jesse Orozco in spring training where Orozco played a prank on Kirk Gibson, put eye black in his hat, and Gibson tore into Orozco tore into the whole team and basically told them I'm not here to lose I'm here to win and if you guys aren't on board with that get out of here and it kind of turned things around you know the Dodgers they still had a lot of fun that 88 team was a lot of fun but it was always fun with winning at the forefront of their goals and they won a lot 94 games in the regular season a huge turnaround from that 87 season however it was largely a down year for Sosha offensively he he hit only 257, missed some time, including five games in September after, uh, I'm sensing a theme here, a collision at the plate, this time with John Cruck. But he came oh, up big in the playoffs. Yeah, the, the Mets were favored pretty heavily going into the NLCS after going 10-1 and against the Dodgers in the regular season. And Sosha played a big part in that NLCS. You know, we've mentioned, despite being huge, he wasn't a power hitter. Great contact hitter, but he only hit 68 home runs in his career in over 5,000 plate appearances, and he'd only hit three in the 1988 regular season. But in game four of that 1988 NLCS, he came up with John Shelby on first base in the ninth inning with the Dodgers down 4-2 to two against Dwight Gooden. Uh, again, a different time. Dwight Gooden was still in the game in the ninth inning. After he walked John Shelby, they kept him in the game. The Mets were up in the series two games to one. If Gooden finishes off this win, it's a three-game-to-one series lead, which is really bad news for the Dodgers. But Sosha ambushed him. He expected a first-pitch fastball, and he got it, and he jumped on it, and he hit it over the wall in right field to tie the game. And the Dodgers eventually won that game on a 12th-inning home run by Kirk Gibson off Roger McDowell. But if Adamant for Sosha's homer off Gooden, you know Gibson wouldn't have got that opportunity, and Gibson wouldn't have got his opportunity in Game 1 of the World Series. There may have been some divine intervention on this play. In the stands at Shea Stadium was Ellen Phillips, and Ellen Phillips was the wife of Mike Sosha's agent. She was also a friend of Mike's mom, Florence. 
And so Florence had passed away a few years prior, and she turned to her husband and said, Florence just told me Mike is going to hit a home run. And on the next pitch, Sosha homered. Well, Florence was going to make sure that Mike didn't ruin his chances by skipping college. She's like, even if I have to do this for him, he's going to succeed. (laughs) So mom coming through in the clutch here. And Sosha came through in the clutch too. For the NLCS, he hit 364. The Dodgers end up winning the series in seven games and go to the World Series, which we've now talked about a few times from both sides of the Dodgers and A's. In the World Series, he gets an RBI in game one. Then in game four, is caught attempting to steal and injures his knee. It was foreshadowing that we talked about his his big 1987 steals total. So he joined a long list of injuries on this Dodgers team and ended up having to leave that game four, missed the decisive game five. But he was a big part of the Dodgers getting to the World Series and a, and a big part of that World Series and handling that pitching staff. Yeah, it's kind of weird that you know, when, when you watch the the replay of the Dodgers win the World Series, Oral Hershiser on the mound, throws the last pitch, dips his head to the to the sky, and then it's Rick Dempsey coming out to celebrate with him. Like, Rick Dempsey isn't a true Dodger, you know, but yeah, you know, Sosha unfortunately was off the field. And so the Dodgers finished that series without Sosha, without Kirk Gibson, but, you know, they wouldn't have won it without those guys. And I was 11 years old at the time, so that's like peak baseball time. You know, my brother and I, no joke, after the Dodgers won the World Series, we did the dance of joy that Balky and Cousin Larry used to do on Perfect Strangers. That's what 1988 was like. We haven't done the dance of joy since then because that's something you save for special things like your favorite team winning the World Series. So very special moment with your brother to celebrate that. In 89 and 90, he still has two excellent seasons left in the tank. He makes the all-star team both times. His first all-star team appearance in 1989, and then in 90, he was the starter for the National League because of an injury to Benito Santiago, and ends up hitting 250 and 264 respectively in those seasons with 10 and 12 home runs, so a lot more power than his earlier seasons. In looking back at these seasons, he was pretty good. Not quite all-star caliber, but I think in comparison to some of the other catchers who were available, a solid pick, and, and definitely recognition of his years of defensive performance and coaches respecting that and respecting Sosha for uh, for the solid career he had. So now we're getting kind of toward the end of, of Mike's career. In 1991, the, the Dodgers are in a first place on October 1st, and then they lose three straight games and are overtaken by Atlanta. They finish in second place with 93 wins. That season, Sosha platooned with Gary Carter. He had a a relatively successful season, hitting 264, playing solid defense. And then in 92, his offense just really fell off. He hit 221 with 24 RBIs. He was also dangerously close to, for the first time in his career, having more strikeouts than walks, 32 walks and 31 strikeouts. He was out of contract after that season, and the Dodgers didn't really want to sign a 34-year-old catcher to a multi-year deal. But he did get a spot in Homer at the bat. Yes, as we discussed in the Steve Sachs episode, Mike Sosha was slated to play a huge role for the Springfield team. However, he was even more excited to work at the power plant and then had to sit out the game due to radiation poisoning. Well-known baseball writer Mike Petriello got his start writing at a blog about the Dodgers called Mike Sosha's Tragic Illness. <laughs> and we will also come back to the radiation poisoning a little bit later. In real life, Mike was granted free agency. That brings an end to Mike's time with you, Jeff. Yeah, and one last note about Sosha, since this is a podcast about baseball cards. Even though he never played a major league game for any team other than the Dodgers, he actually has two baseball cards with the Padres in 1993, and then in 1994 a card in which he is wearing a Padres uniform, but the card says he's on the Rangers. He'd signed a deal with the Padres in 1993, but he got hurt in spring training and never played for them. And then in 94, he signed a minor league deal with the Rangers enough to to get somebody hoping that he would be able to play for them. So they made a Rangers card for him in a Padres uniform. But yeah, he never played for any team other than the Dodgers, but has cards on two different teams. So closing the book on Mike Sosha, in 13 seasons, he hit 259 
with 68 home runs, 198 doubles, and 446 RBIs, made two All-Star games, and has two World Series rings. How about in retirement? Mike is married to Anne, has a son named Matt, who played minor league baseball, and a daughter named Taylor, who played volleyball at Loyola Marymount. During his career, Sosha was often discussed as a a likely future manager. There would be polls of players asking who would make a great manager. Sosha's name often came up. Other players and managers respected his baseball mind and his willingness to stay late at the field to talk baseball and to learn from coaches and managers. So it was little surprise when Sosha joins the Dodgers coaching staff as a catching instructor. Later, he became a bench coach. And his name often came up as a future Dodger manager. And sometimes it came up in other managerial position discussions, including the White Sox. He spent one season as the manager of the Dodgers AAA club in Albuquerque, and yet his opportunity to be a big league manager came from that other team in the L.A. area, the Anaheim or whatever they were in 1999 Angels. Jeff, as a Dodger fan, was it shocking to you to see this paragon of Dodgerdom move to that other town not not really it's not really a rivalry at least not on the side of dodger fans you know the dodgers and angels are in different leagues both literally and figuratively uh if you ask us dodger fans anyway honestly if time of lasorda had lasted a couple more years i think Sosha would have been the dodgers manager lasorda had to retire kind of abruptly after some health issues in i think 1997 and Sosha just didn't have the managerial experience in the minor leagues and whatever at that point in time. So they passed him up, went with Bill Russell instead. And that kind of, you know, basically Mike Sosha's chance with the Dodgers was gone, at least for that time. We did all know that he was eventually going to be a manager. And so really for me, it just kind of made sense. Sosha really turned the Angels team around. They had finished with 92 losses in 1999 and Sosha got them over 500. Within three seasons, he had them in the playoffs for the first time since 1986 And they won the World Series in 2002. That was the first championship in the team's history. He made the playoffs six of his first 10 seasons and won two Manager of the Year awards. He also had another big highlight here, his second Simpsons appearance. In the episode Money Bart, Lisa was looking for extracurricular activities, and she took over as manager of the Springfield Isotots, which is a great name. She learned about sabermetrics from some nerds at a bar, including... Professor Frink, and she ends up kicking Bart off the team for hitting a home run instead of taking a pitch. Bart goes to an amusement <laughs> park, and he meets up with Mike Sosha on a roller coaster, and it comes out that Sosha has gained superhuman managerial powers from his radiation poisoning. So it was a pretty good episode, and I, I think that Sosha is maybe the only player from the Homer at the Bat episode to make a return appearance on The Simpsons. Though what really stands out to me is that Lisa was Tony La Russa and Bart was your mean Mercedes. <laughs> After his star turn on The Simpsons, his second star turn on The Simpsons, the Angels had a bit of a downturn. And in, from 2014 to 2018, the Angels missed out on the playoffs every year. And Sosha finally stepped down after 19 seasons. This is the longest managerial run since Bobby Cox had managed Atlanta for 21 years. He didn't really give an excuse for why he was stepping down. But the team had been underperforming. In years since, his name has surfaced from time to time in connection with other coaching jobs, and he did return to manage for the USA baseball team at the 2020-2021 Olympics. Unlike Lasorda, Sosha's club was unable to win the gold medal, taking silver in a gold medal game loss to Japan. So now that we've dug into Mike Sosha, what are our th- what are our final thoughts? And Jeff, we'll let you go first. You know, Mike Sosha is a guy who it's impossible not to like if you're a Dodger fan of about my age. He was just one of those guys, kind of that working class attitude that everybody loved. You know, not spectacular at anything really, but solid at pretty much everything. And just a really nice guy. I've only met him one time uh, when he was managing the Angels. He came and the Angels rookie league team was here in Utah near where I live. And he came and did at a little fundraiser dinner for that team and spoke. And I got a chance to meet him and he's just the nicest guy, most pleasant guy. And you know, the, the old question, if you could pick any former players to have dinner with, who would you choose? Mike Sosha would be high on my list because he's done everything in baseball. He clearly knows the game and loves the game. And that's the kind of guy I want to talk to. 
And he probably knows all the good restaurants. <laughs> These 80s Dodgers teams were full of characters. As we talked about in the Steve Sachs episode, there's a lot of pranksters. And Sosha was a character himself. Who else would be in a slim, fast commercial with Tommy Lasorda? Two turns on The Simpsons. He seems like a fun guy. He was a young player in the middle of Fernando Mania. And then he later caught a good deal of Oral Hirschheiser's scoreless inning streak. So he was also in, involved in important moments on the field for the Dodgers and was a real leader on two World Series teams. He caught the most games in Dodger history and was the first Dodger since Roy Campanella to start an All-Star game. And I found a list that has him as the third best catcher in Dodger history. Not bad when the two ahead of you are Roy Campanella and Mike Piazza. He then went on to an outstanding managerial career, 19th all-time in wins, and he might be a Hall of Famer as a manager. There's a lot of guys on that list around him who are. Yeah, I, I think Mike Sosha is absolutely a Hall of Fame manager. You know, he won a World Series, that many wins, everything. Yeah, I think he will be in Cooperstown as a manager at some point. And that would be a great culmination of, of a lifetime of baseball. And on Baseball Reference, it says he attended Penn State. And we referenced earlier his mother Florence's desire to see him go to college. And Florence passed away in 1983 as Mike was establishing himself. So she didn't really see the player that Mike would become. And later the coach and manager and teacher of young players that Mike would turn into. Probably passing on lessons that he learned from his mother, the school teacher. And so he may have had some divine intervention to thank for that 1988 NLCS home run. And I'm sure that Florence in some way forgave Mike for passing up that scholarship. And he certainly has, has made something of himself. Cannot argue with that. Another episode with a great mom and an episode with a great guest. So Jeff Snyder, thank you so much for joining us on the 1988 Tops podcast. And tell us again where listeners can find you. Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Snydog, S-N-I-D-O-G. It's just my last name, but with an og instead of an er at the end. And uh, the podcast is called Locked on Dodgers. Like I said, it's five days a week. And if for some reason you are a fan of a team other than the Dodgers, the Locked On Podcast Network has a podcast for them that's every day too. So search for Locked On and then the name of your favorite team and you're going to find a podcast. Thanks again for joining us and keep those corrections coming. We'll look forward to those. Thank you, David, for the story. And thank you to you at home. If you've ever shared a limousine with Ed Begley Jr., we would love to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. 